Who do you love more, me or Teddy? Because I can get down on all fours. I chase balls, and I love a biscuit. This is an emergency APB for all agents. Be on the lookout for a stellar cast of Hollywood big shots under impenetrable makeup, a pair of posh limey twins dressed in bedsheets, and a mob of talking Japanese apes destined to rule the earth of tomorrow. That last bunch are wanted for first degree plagiarism. Flicking through the mugshots, I'm Phil Walsh. Insisting that you fell out of the window by yourself, I'm Jim Hall, and that noise coming from your wrist radio is the 17th Midnight Video. Tonight, we remember a time before Transformers, when Warren Beatty, Madonna, and a ton of grotesque prosthetics made for a summer blockbuster. We look back at 1990's Dick Tracy. Hippies playing lethal mind games clash with London's criminal lowlifes, and there's no Mick Jagger in sight. We join beautiful people, Judy Geeson and Martin Potter in bidding goodbye Gemini. And an earthquake during a demonstration of cryogenics results in a redubbed and severely truncated Japanese TV show being passed off as a startlingly fresh concept in science fiction cinema. Will we be offering an opposable thumbs up or down to Time of the Apes? to me. <laughs> Bonjour. <laughs> Nerdy Monsieur Walsh. <laughs> Ça va? Back from uh, a week in France where uh, I have images of you driving around in an open top round Monte Carlo <laughs> with a little Herb Albert and the Tijuana brass <laughs> coming from the dash. <laughs> Spanish fly on the stereo there. You had a good time? Yeah, it was ace. Yeah, yeah. it was really nice. It was nothing like what you, what you thought I was getting up to. It was, a, it was a sort of rural bucolic little oh, village right. in uh, in Provence, just and outside Nice. A year in Provence, you were the John Thor kind of character. No, I'm the was Russell Crowe. Is it Russell Crowe? Didn't he do a good year or something? Oh, I don't know. Was it, What was that, the film version of the... Yeah, Ridley Scott directed it. Really? That's passed me by. Oh, it's like, like a turd in a, in a sewer. <laughs> Oh, but uh, before you went away, uh, and on our last show we were mentioning you were going to do your little, your own little movie challenge. Yeah. <laughs> and I got some text updates on that. You were, you, you, you bore up okay, didn't you? Yeah, I did alright, I think. Not um, too bad. 26 movies in alphabetical order. In 42 hours, I think I did it. Man, oh man. Yeah. With, I had a couple of hours sleep in between London River and... Um, whatever M was, I can't makes remember. Makes you sound like a tramp. You bedded down on a bench. <laughs> oh, Mad Dog Morgan, that's it. I started on a high after I woke up. Hey. Um, uh, best besties? Mad Dog Morgan mm-hmm. was one of them. Uh, Vampire's Kiss, Nick oh, Cage. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely loved that. <laughs> Nick Cage seems to be... Uh, filtering in. Yeah, he's getting some love on the Facebook yeah. page, isn't he? Even for his, even for in uh, the Wicker Man, especially for the Wicker Man. <laughs> <laughs> Not my legs, the bees, the bees. <laughs> Worst is, um, oh, I forget what the name is. Severed Ways, I think it's a, a Viking movie that's all shot on a handheld digital camera with kind of death metal soundtrack. It was fucking terrible. It was a real chore to get through. I hated it. 
and I was slight. I was pretty underwhelmed with Kill Baby Kill. Oh right, the uh, Barva. Yeah, yeah, that was one. Uh, Which a lot Maria, of people love. I think, yeah, was saying that was her favourite. We've yeah. got tuning out even now. I know, but I, I was like fourteen hours, fifteen hours into the challenge, and mm. I think I needed pepping up, and it didn't pep me all the way up. The dandelion and burdock was running out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> need something a little stronger. Yeah, so uh, but I'll revisit it. I think that needs reappraising on my behalf. Anyway. Yeah, probably best to do it without all those modifiers. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, show seventeen. Yeah, good stuff. Ready for some uh, rock and roll? Yeah. Okie doke. <laughs> That's my version of rock and roll. Go <laughs> suck an egg. Tim Burton was seen as just the right caliber of wayward visual genius to bring a bizarre comic book criminal underworld to life for 1989's Batman. The following summer, Warren Beatty was a less obvious choice to be handed the keys to nostalgic funny book Dick Tracy. However, the Tinseltown Big Shot was able to enlist top draw names including Al Pacino and Dustin Hoffman to play a rogues gallery of villains, and current squeeze Madonna, aka the biggest star on the planet, as bad girl temptress Breathless Mahoney. So, do you remember the summer of 1990? Like it was yesterday. <laughs> Don't joke um, about it, I, yeah. No, well, kind of, yeah, it was... Robin Hood out that year as well uh, I think the following the other big mm. films that year that I remember getting a lot of um, publicity were Goodfellows yeah uh, good, Goodfellas Goodfellas <laughs> yeah. but this like we were saying in the introduction this was very much the equivalent of Batman the year earlier it was a publicity blitz um, it was one of those things where you saw there were two or three clips from it that were on TV all the time because there was mm. such a such a blitz on it um, did you go and see it? The pictures? Yeah, I saw it a few times actually. A I few saw it. Yes, yeah, maybe three times. I, I was going to say four, but I can't be certain. But yeah, I saw it uh, with my parents, and then I saw it with mates. Went mm-hmm. twice with mates. But yeah, I absolutely loved it. So it was. Uh, I was quite happy to cover this again because you you wanted to cover this. I did want to cover this. It was either this or. Um, Dick Tracy meets Gruesome, which is kind of a much older movie with Boris Karloff. But I thought, you know, we'd, we'd done some Karloff a few shows back with Body Snatcher. I thought this, um, it was kind of like when we covered Howard the Duck, I was faintly hoping that might be something that had a bit of a kicking when it came out and might be true for reappraisal, but it was it was bloody <laughs> awful, as <laughs> we well know. Um, this, I remember watching it because I'd have been... 18 I was getting my A level results when this came out right. uh, not not that very afternoon but um, <laughs> I remember being a bit underwhelmed by it but it's, yeah it would be something interesting to watch uh, a few years later especially now there's so many comic book adaptations out and just seeing how uh, how it was done in a s- not quite pre CGI age but not no. far off there was enough there, there was actually I was quite impressed with the effects because there was a lot of matte painting used mm. and I, I read about the size of the paintings, the work on the glass they were using, um, but it did sort of put me in mind of um, like uh, Sin City and that kind of it had like that must have been influenced in some way, yeah, possibly because it's actually trying to look like the comic rather yeah. than taking the comic and trying to see how that would work in the real world. Yeah, like a limited color palette, wasn't it? I think they were yeah, just they using used the really. Colors. It wasn't primary colors, but I think they had a. I think it was half a dozen colors yeah. that would be used in newspaper That's strips right. and. So very stark colours, lots of yellows and reds and greens. Mm. Um, did it hold up for you? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I've watched it since I saw it at the cinema. I've watched it loads of times anyway, on DVD. And uh, yeah, I've, 
I probably appreciate it more now than when I was a youngster because, like I said, noticing um, things like the effects, the matte painting, the performances, the it's it's kind of clever as well because they they've not just gone down the obvious camp route either. They've they sort of skirt either side of it. Yeah, I think because. Warren Beatty was really involved in this. I don't. He wasn't bought in at the last minute, although another project was in de- development for a long, long time. Since '75, yeah. I think. Um, but I remember interviews with him at the time, and you know, obviously, it's in his interest to say this. But it felt like he was a genuine fan of this newspaper strip growing up. Right. And yeah, they're not going for camp. It does have a good. Um, you can tell there's a sense of humour to it, but they kind of there's a certain amount of respect for it as well yeah definitely and um, I mean the first thing I was going to say with this um, Danny Elfman does the music um, we mentioned Batman which was the year before <laughs> they're, I, I found them fairly indistinguishable as scores I was going to say they're interchangeable apart yeah. from the Stephen Sondheim numbers yeah that's, um, that's, that's, that's to... kind of different uh, yeah the, they've got those, those sort of wearing horns and yeah. it's got a lot of momentum <laughs> Okay, it propels, it propels the film forward I think because the odd thing, it, it was such a big summer blockbuster at least marketed that way and I'm not sure how, I think having read up on it, I think it did actually do well enough that they were thinking of doing a sequel but I think there were various problems with other people not interested in doing it but yeah, um, the reason I raised the Elfman thing is I'm not sure how useful this is, but I'm going to kind of compare it to Batman. Um, I think it's a much better movie than Batman. Batman did the, the Tim Burton Batman didn't seem to really know whether it wanted to go with the camp because it's hard to think now. Now we think of Batman as the dark, um, the, the dark. The, oh, the, the Christopher Nolan stuff. Or yeah, but even before I suppose. Whereas if you can remember in 1989, um, I know you'd been very young, but it was a real jump. Uh, a real leap of faith for audiences to think, well, is he not just Adam West and all that kind yeah. of Zap Pow thing? It was people weren't used to that the style we probably know from the comics, the yeah. well, the very old comics, but also Frank Miller's kind of version of him. Um, so yeah, I, I I did like the fact that this seemed to have a certain amount of humour to it, and I think one of the best things about it, surprising, is Al Pacino. I was gonna. I've written down that I think this is the my favorite Al Pacino <laughs> role of all time because he's like the head villain in it, big boy. Yeah, uh, it's it's kind of a family friendly uh, Tony Montana. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> What's it? I didn't think of him at all. No. When I was watching it, uh, Tony Montana, you know, or even Michael Corleone, mm. but he looks like he actually quite enjoys the chance to be let loose a bit and joke around. But he's actually very good timing. Like one of the first scenes you see him in is when he's. Um, Bought up this club and he's with all these dancing girls. He's made them rehearse till two in the morning, but he's he's down with them. He's getting he's getting really into it. Yeah. If, if anyone's yeah. seen cruising, you know the dancing. <laughs> I certainly wasn't thinking of cruising when I was watching this. <laughs> I was as soon as I saw, it, I thought, oh shit, he's dancing again. All I can think of is cruising. Come on, I'm, I'm blushing at the thought of it. Yeah, in the intervening <laughs> ten years or so, he's picked up a few moves from somewhere, mm. dropping his walnuts on the floor. <laughs> But yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, he even designed his costume. Really? Yeah, he was right. allowed free reign to do that. He was, I think he he was so into it, um, and it, well, it shows as well. It's because uh, yeah, it is. It was hard to remember how many big names there are in this, in quite minor roles as well. I mean, someone as big as Al Pacino, it would be quite unusual to have them hidden under that much makeup. Because even when Jack Nicholson was the Joker, it was still very much the Jack Nicholson we've known. For you know, yeah. some years, who just goes ape shit all the time. 
Uh, but this Dustin Hoffman has a f- relatively minor role, but he's very good in it. Yeah. He's mumbles. He's <laughs> 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 yeah, great. Um, and a nice thing was there were a lot of the other, because I'm no expert on the old Dick Tracy cartoons, um, comics. I've, I've read a few of them. Mm. Um, in fact, I remember, I think when this came out, obviously they compiled a lot. And I think a few years later it was in, it was a, heavy item in remainder bookstores I remember buying it for about a quid fifty <laughs> and quite enjoying them but um, I'll come back to that later but this did seem to feature all of the famous rogues gallery of villains and you've got those stars like Pacino and Hoffman but also a lot of uh, people who aren't so famous like Henry Silver yeah but he does look so much like like <laughs> himself anyway <laughs> well yeah it sounds like they looked at these grotesque Chester Gould um, drawings and thought who looks like that <laughs> What oh, Forsyth as flat top really oh, kind of yeah, that's fantastic. That. Yeah, really. yeah, and uh, Edo Ross as um, is it Itches? Itch? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. yeah. he's got that great sort of squeaky little voice. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, and like you said earlier, the map paintings are good. And one of the first things when I was watching this, I watched it for a second time last night mm. um, for the show. Um, there is something I don't know about charming, but something very um, distinct about the fact that they're not trying to fool you with the backdrops they are trying to make them look a little bit artificial and obviously you've got the colour code not colour coding but the limited palette of colours for everything in it um, that really gave it something a bit special I've got to say though overall I found this, it went on too long I didn't I didn't really enjoy it that much I don't think No. yeah I thought it was a, it was a tad long by the end, by the sort of last 20 minutes it started feeling it was mm. just getting drawn out well, yeah, for the show, because like I say, I saw it when it came out, but for the show, I've watched it twice in the last month, and there's there, it's the same point both occasions when I've thought, oof, really? Is there another hour of this to go? And it's when <laughs> um, they've set up the bug uh, yeah. microphone, and there's a kind of montage of Dick Tracy and spinning newspapers, which ends with him walking towards the camera with a with a Tommy gun. And at that point, thinking, oh yeah, we're somewhere into the film. I think, oh no, there's still another fifty minutes or something <laughs> to go. Um, and I think this is, you know, it's a, it's a problem I've gone on about before. But um, the, the, they've taken the source material of a comic and they've gone for, they've done a very good job with the visuals. But there's, even with the comic, the original newspaper strip, I don't think there was enough substance there to sustain a two-hour narrative. Mm. And so what do you have here? Um, they've got all of those villains together, although um, you, it's mainly Al Pacino's character, the others have kind of cameos. Um, there's a love interest, uh, Tess Trueheart, and there's an ongoing story of whether they're going to get married or not. Will they, won't they? Will they, won't <laughs> they? The kid, this little kid. <laughs> and the whole thing there with him, you know, Dick Tracy gets quite paternal with him and you're thinking that really smacked of plot development you could imagine a group of writers trying to work out how to get some heart into the film mm. it and it didn't work with everything else about it you know like I say this humor which is all the way through it and then I guess the main plot is um, Madonna is breathless Mahoney this nightclub singer who's uh, you know leading Dick Tracy away but um, I know all those things it, it felt like very typical things you get in Hollywood script writing when someone's thought we need this script to have momentum to it and to go from A to B and stuff you're thinking Ugh. yeah because even you know you've got like big boy um, who's his nemesis basically Dick Tracy's nemesis but even even their sort of storyline it, it peters out quite early on because yeah, big boy takes over the whole town and you know wh- where can he go from there so. like. and framing Dick Tracy for murder and you know 
And the all thing the cliches I, are in there. All the basically. cliches. <laughs> and the worst one is this faceless character that turns up with a distorted voice who's obviously in disguise. It's like, well, who could this possibly be? <laughs> mm. <laughs> There's only one suspect. Who needs to disguise himself so much? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, um, that's the thing. I, I think this would have been great as, well, something shorter, really. But... That was going to say. I got those Chester Gould strips in a, com- a compilation, and I quite enjoyed reading them. As I, th- I might be wrong on this. I think they were published as a newspaper strip in about five panels daily. Right. And you know, that's a whole different way of telling a story. You know, it's not really aimed at doing something like this. So I it's always going to. I mentioned Sin City before, but you know, like those, uh, the film was three stories. I think yeah. maybe something like that would have worked better. Yeah, a ninety-minute movie, but with three half-hour. Um, maybe interconnecting stories I don't know I I think there would have been more scope and it would have held our attention more well mine as well Um, yeah because I I mean I watched this late last night and even though I've seen it a lot you know trying to be a bit more uh, critical about it I did I was that was the first thing I noticed was like oh god there's still an hour to go (laughs) yeah performances Madonna who's got a bit of an up and down reputation uh, acting wise yeah <laughs> and uh, well yeah. at this point <laughs> um, well, yeah this was about the time she did In Bed with Madonna which has that famous because that's when she was with Warren Beatty and I thought she was perfectly acceptable um, quite husky and doing yeah. her sing- she was very good at singing I can't fault her at that I, like the we mentioned the Sondheim numbers before which are all I quite like that kind of stuff anyway they're okay it's I mean I'm, again I'm not an expert on them I'm not sure whether they sound a bit too much like pastiches of sort of 1930s 40s songs mm. rather than something you'd ever think is real but that's not a problem with something like this it's not trying to make out that it's the real world at any point no no they're definitely uh, um, meta songs <laughs> yeah I'm sure that's what BT said to Sondheim oh it's a meta song <laughs> but yeah BT himself um, when this came out because a famous thing about Dick Tracy the cartoon character, the comic character is that he has this kind of weird I'm, I'm indicating it with my finger which isn't very helpful <laughs> he has this very strange nose and profile doesn't he? Yeah, he and did. people say oh yeah we're, we're betting Warren Beatty's not going to have any prosthetics himself you know, and indeed he doesn't um, mm. well the makeup people turned around and said we can't hide one of the most recognised faces in Hollywood, they said that to Al Pacino and <laughs> Justin Hoffman <laughs> go figure Yeah, but I, I I've got to say, I had an issue with Warren Beatty, and it's. Um, I think the main thing is, I'm not sure if it was intended as a joke that Beatty's own reputation is of this at this point anyway. He's a happily married man now with Annette Benning, but at the time it was he was a bad boy, you know, jumping in and out of bed with so many women, and whereas Dick Tracy's a total straight arrow, and there are any number of scenes here where Madonna is like crawling on the desk in front of him, and he's sitting there looking uncomfortable and not really knowing what to do and either that was meant to be a joke where they're playing with perceptions of BT and Dick Tracy but it doesn't work for me and that meant it kind of took me out of the film itself I, right. I couldn't because Dick Tracy himself doesn't have much personality no which I which found BT not to have that much in this anyway yeah um, but for yeah I mean for me the film really is more about like the the fun with the villains and the the other characters because I know I know BT has said that he tried to get as many in as possible mm. because they were unsure about a, se- a sequel being made yeah. hence there being like, oh, that right. many uh, rogues um, 
and they're just great fun, you know. Even, even uh, Dick Van Dyke as the Dick the, mayor. the yeah, is it the, the mayor? He's the district attorney. As That's well. I think right, he's yeah. running for mayor. He's quite. He's quite. But he's good. Um, yeah, it's almost like you're watching it and thinking, why didn't they get De Niro in then? And mm. Where's Nicholson and all these kind of things? But yeah, it seems to have all the others in there. Yeah, it does. Yeah, an appearance from our old pal Michael J. Pollard. Yeah, with the uh, weird prosthetic ears. Did you see? Yeah, well, he's the guy he's doing, doing the the stay cat with the, right. the bugging device. But um, yeah, um, so you said there wasn't a sequel to this, or you could live without it. I could live without it now because it un- inevitably it will just be CGI'd, and the the beauty of this. Oh yeah, Jesus! How can I not say it? it's uh, Vittorio Storaro yes, did the cinematography. Yes. Yeah. Um, the Conformist. Yeah, um, so you've got all these top names involved. Fifth Chord, which I saw recently. Yeah, and he worked, obviously worked his magic with the lighting. And mm. um, uh, yeah, no, a sequel wouldn't be. Yeah, wouldn't be on the cards for me. I just, you know, I did, it, Again, it does seem a bit of a forgotten film now. I think it's given the publicity when it came out. It's not something that crops up on TV in the afternoon very regularly. I don't think you know, no. in the way that Batman still does. That's still a bit of a yeah, that's true. Still got a bit of a cachet to it. Um, but yeah, just looking back, it's just a weird thing that they got Warren Beatty of all people because I think the previous films they directed were um, Heaven Can Wait, which is a bit, a bit ropey. And uh, Reds, Reds, which is I've never managed to sit all the way through, but it's, uh, he's not the obvious choice of guy to go for this. But then I guess Robert Altman and Popeye was uh, oh, a similar thing. Yeah, absolutely love that as well. <laughs> Although I think that's got a better soundtrack. I guess that's the end of Dick. Thirty seconds, no more Dick. Thirty seconds, no more Dick. Thirty seconds, no more Dick. So it's uh, kind of not really competition. Competition time. time. <laughs> <laughs> not proper, not proper competition time. Uh, well, the first one certainly is. The other's a little sign of appreciation. But yes, um, our wonderful, wonderful T-shirts, which Phil isn't wearing today. You've got, um, got what was her name? 45. Zoe. I can't remember the name of the actress. Oh, God, I've forgotten as well now. Is it Zoe Lucker or Zoe Tapper? I don't know. Zoe Tapper. She's the new one, Sounds isn't she? She's the one from Survivors and. Oh, I don't know about that. Thousand Streets Under the Sky. Anyway, yeah, um, a wonderful T-shirts, um, which we had one competition for, and since then it's been, um, you know, all you guys who've entered at A to Z of movies through Midnight Video have been put into the hat, or more precisely the. Um, it's an empty kind of um, ice cream tub that we use, um, but yeah, finally we're going to select some winners. Yeah, so at long last. First off, um, the actual answer to our initial question, which was to identify all of the figures, the, the characters t-shirt. and the, the element. characters and the one element. Um, so, <laughs> I guess so we haven't had too many right answers for this. Um, but we'll reveal, you know, I think it's a great looking t-shirt regardless in terms yeah. of, you know, the ethos of the shirt. But someone nailed it. He, yes. He got them all right and he also made a very salient point that maybe our competitions have been a, a little bit too difficult or... Uh, yeah, and quite... Um, self yeah. <laughs> so we apologise for that. <laughs> yeah. But let's reveal what the t-shirt figures are for any, you know, baffled listeners out there. Yeah. So we have, although we don't have a copy of it in front of us, we have um, Richard Keel as Golob from The Humanoid, which we covered on show three. Woo-hoo. We have Roger Moore as Rufus Excalibur Folks from North Sea Hijack, or Folks if you're living outside the UK. Show we, one. Yes, show one. And also, also from show one, uh, Peter Jackson as Derek from Bad Taste. Brilliant. With a chainsaw. Yeah. Um, 
Lady Sylvia, Sylvia, as played by Amanda Donahoe from Lair of the White Worm from show two, and Christopher Plummer from Silent Partner dressed as Father Christmas. And, bonus element, it was a melted crucifix from Static. Excellent, yeah. Which, um, See, it wasn't that difficult. Come on, people. <laughs> Pull your finger out. Oh. Although, yeah, when we were designing the T-shirt, because Rich, um, Rich Wells, who did such a fantastic job on it, was sending us all the artwork individually, and we're putting in different kind of um, versions of it. We were hoping at one point to have the melted crucifix form the smoke of some gun coming from Christopher Plummer's... Uh, Revolver. Revolver, yeah, but uh, we didn't go for that yet. But anyway, a correct entry is... Chris Salt. The Salt Man, who certain listeners may know. Also, um, was it the video competition on Adam and Joe's podcast? Yeah, for his Lego sculpting. So he probably goes from podcast to podcast cleaning up on competitions. (laughs) Well done, Chris. Bravo. We'll be getting in touch with you to get your size. And your address. And your address, yes, it'd be very helpful. Mm. But since then, we've done, what is it, one, two, three, four, four shows of um, Midnight Video Movie A to Z, so we're going to pick some winners now of all the people whose stuff has been read out. Not winners, randomly, randomly randomly, uh, contributors. Randomly contributors? Random contributors. We're the random (laughs) contributors. Okay, so Phil, do you want to reach into the hat, the ice cream tub, sorry? Okay, and our first winner is Richard Sampson. Richard Sampson. Um, Richard. Quite quite an enthused contributor. Yeah, he's on the Facebook page a lot, and he's updating on... He sent us a very bizarre um, picture that he drew one lunchtime, actually. Have you seen that on the blog? Yes, you made a cheeky comment about me on Twitter about (laughs) it. (laughs) It's kind of like a a Cronenberg, Barosian... Geiger... Lynch-like yeah. monstrosity, but it's it's lovely. But yes, uh, we'll be in touch with you for your size and address. And, and I'm going to pick a second winner now. And this is Marie Hepworth. Woo-hoo. Thank you very much. Go um, power, go power. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we've got a fifty-fifty split of male-female listeners out there. Um, like all like all <laughs> film podcasts. <laughs> all film podcasts. Films, you know, obscure movies and Hollywood oh, yeah, and Dick yeah. Tracy and that kind of <laughs> malarkey. Howard the Duck. If uh, you want to pick um, a third winner. And this one is... Oh, hey, Giles Edwards, father of twins. Oh, Which is yeah. quite apt for this show. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Mm. yes. Okay, in bringing things up to date, let's pick a final winner. Is if I can pronounce this Matt Nieder or Nida? I'd say Nida. So yeah, you guys, we're going to be in touch with you. Um, in fact, probably may have been already by the time this goes out, depending on how organised we are. But well done. Um, and we'll be picking out a winner later for this show's contributions. So uh, yeah, keep them coming in, and uh, you might win yourself a fantastic T-shirt. Yeah. Woohoo! I'm telling you, Jackie, this is the big wicked city, babe, and there's two kinds of people. There's the marks and the operators. Now, you two are marks, and me, I'm an operator. So, Jube will go for the whiskey. Straddling the worlds of psychological drama, horror, and plain old British cinema curio, 1970s Goodbye Gemini sees blonde teen twins Jackie and Julian hit London just as all the swing has gone out of it. 
with their private language of in-jokes, games and rituals either annoying or enchanting those they meet, the twins soon fall in with various rum coves, including Alexis Canner, Mike Pratt, a hammock-bound Freddie Jones and Sir Michael Redgrave. Alas, partying with the wrong crowd ends in tears, not to mention blackmail, transvestism and murder. Uh, I think this was one of my choices, because when I bought Girly, Mumsy, Sonny, Nanny, Uncle Bob, Rita yeah. Sue... Um, not Uncle Charlie from the next <laughs> film. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, All will become clear. This was... kept being pushed on me by Amazon if you if you bought this you might like this and I'd never heard of it and once I've read up on it I thought oh, that sounds really intriguing something that's not been seen this, since the 70s yeah I'd never heard of it it sounds to have yeah slipped through the cracks yeah um, um 1970 it came out although it's it's got that real feel of the 60s hangover hasn't it it's it really yeah. has yeah um yeah, like you say, it's sort of straddling the... Well, it's not fan de siècle, but the fan de decade. Which which lent it a certain tone, or uneven tone. Um, yeah, it's it. well, I'd never heard of this. Um, so, and it sounded like something that, yeah, again, could be a bit of a lost corker. <laughs> Indiana Jones and the lost corkers. Um, a really great opening, I thought, but it kind of plants the seeds of why this isn't going to really work. It's got this great theme tune, um, which I can't remember the name really? of. It's something like going into... Great. Well, <laughs> not like I'm going to be downloading it, but it's, it, it, if you're watching a film, you want something quite punchy at the beginning. Mm. And it's this very um, bluesy kind of rock thing with loads of really frappy organ, uh, organ music going on in it. Very throaty. It sounds a bit like Cream or something. Yeah, um, but it's playing over shots of these couple of kids in a sort of National Express coach coming to London <laughs> on the A40. Yeah, <laughs> while Battersea Power Station still working, still working in the background, <laughs> and I think that's typical of it. It just has that. It feels like, in a bad way, a time capsule piece. And I, I don't know if that was ever going to be glamorous, but that that gap between the music was obviously indicating they're trying to do something really amazing here, but the reality of it is drab. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it sort of screws up from there on in. Um, <laughs> obviously, you know, we're looking back at this after 40 years, but I don't think there's any excuse for having these two twins in it in bright yellow jackets. They look like they're, um, they're working in at a holiday camp. Uh, the village. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, at least it doesn't have a twist ending to it, does it? <laughs> but there's a weird scene early on, because they, they irritate me from the, the off, this pair. Uh, it's kind of going back to Mumsy Nanny we reviewed a few shows back. But again, it's that... Um, I don't know if this was the fact, but you, there's that hippie, English hippie thing of um, using things like Alice in Wonderland and nursery stuff and being a bit ironic about it. I, there's a sense with them they do have these in jokes and little games that they play and I think even the soundtrack reflects that a little bit but very early on they get to um, this house they're going to be staying at in London and the landlady quite rightly finds them both quite irritating and it cuts then to uh, the two of them setting a little trap for her which basically is this bloody black bear, which she's going to be Agamemnon. featuring Agamemnon, which is going to be featuring prominently throughout the uh, the film. They carry this fucking teddy bear <laughs> around with them all the time. Leave it at the top of the stairs, and I think um, Martin Potter's character uh, Julian leaves his glasses broken, 
at the bottom. No, it's, it's her, her glasses. Her, sorry, the landlady's glasses, the so she can't see. Mm. And pretty much thinking, what? They're yeah. gonna they're gonna call her and get her to trip over this bear, go down the stairs, and if she's not broken her neck, she'll land up in these uh, in this broken glass, mm. which is what happens. We don't see it, but it's clear from the um, the sound um, the sound effects. Yeah. But this then has some quite jolly music over it, doesn't it? Um, not like hilarious or you know ironic circus music or something, but just kind of pastoral, fluty, stringy, melodramatic shit. I wrote. Yeah, and you're thinking, what's th- what? What's going on with this film? And from there on in, yeah, it's the pair of them going round. Uh, yeah, well, we said in the introduction, London after the swing's gone out of it, and it just you've got various um, peculiar characters that they fall in with very quickly, including um, Alexis Canna, who'll be familiar from the last few episodes of The Prisoner uh, and he looks very much the same as he did there, he's got mm. these incredible uh, sideburns <laughs> his mutton chops yeah, yeah, which, um, which on the commentary are, uh, Judy Geeson claims were fake but I'm not sure her memory's too clear on these things <laughs> Uh, but yes, I've, I've rubbed it on a little bit, but uh, I'll describe the entire film if I'm not careful. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't a fan of it at all. Like to sum it up, there were some redeeming features for me, and I did actually quite live uh, Alexis. Live, I quite liked Alexis Cannon's bizarre uh, character because he has this roaming accent that goes from Irish to that's all over the shop. It, it's it, yeah, it goes very American at some point, like a drawl. Like I've I've got written down, he sounds like um, the spitting image puppet of David Steele. <laughs> but yeah, the commentary and uh, I think stuff I have read on the internet said he's all over the place, isn't he? It's, yeah, it's um, bizarre. But he's this. I don't know what to call him really. He basically they bump into him in a pub, um, in one of the, the first of several scenes where we're meant to be surprised that women turn out to be transvestites, even though it's very clear. From yeah, there. I was going to ask about that because I found it. There's a number of sequences, uh, like you say, where that happens, and I w- I was just wondering, would that even have convinced an audience of 1970? No, I think men in dresses still look like men in dresses. Even yeah, then. yeah. But, um, but I'm sure they were the filmmakers were thinking, "Oh, we're gonna like this is really gonna pull the rug out from under them." Because the first one, when they're in this pub and they meet Alexis Canner, there's um, there's a transvestite stripping on the bar, which is what I thought it was obvious from. Because as soon as uh, we see him from the back, once he's got his dress off, and you can just tell from the shape of the body, it's, yeah, he's got uh, no hips. Yeah. yeah. Believe us, we've been fooled in the past. And, uh, <laughs> and there were no, I just horrified. One thing that really annoyed me, and I picked up on it very quickly, very quickly early on. So I was, I was always aware of it. Was the low angles, like shooting up all the time. I found it really disconcerting after mm. a while. It seemed trying to be arty, but yeah, completely unnecessary. There is. There is one bit when the camera's got a bit of flare, isn't it? Don't they film from the ceiling at one point? Yes, um, yeah. Kind of midway round. But yeah, like you say, a lot of it just seems like they've made that deliberate choice of shooting from below. Mm. I don't know if it's meant to make things seem disoriented. It might even have an Alice in Wonderland quality, I don't know. But it's not a pleasurable thing to sit through. No, and, and there's like. Sort of, there's quite a few um, mirrors involved throughout as well, which is I don't, it just seems well, so obvious. Really pushing the boat out. Really yeah, and I wasn't Come convinced on, by the uh, the twins either in the what should have been a ro- roles that that needed to be very convincing. I the the sort of love for each other. They didn't. Yeah, they it, just seem like a brother and a sister, and and Martin Potter's not gone on to anything 
well, not too much else. And he, it's not Maybe his fault. Maybe he's gone on to what happened in room 104. <laughs> um, <laughs> at the Woodlands Hotel. He's not gone on to much else. But, in fact, on the commentary, they're talking about him as if he's dead. But I don't, I've not found any proof um, to satisfy me on that. It's not his fault, but he's got really spooky eyes. He's, mm. he's oh, man, I just wanted to punch him in the face. As I found him very annoying. Him. Um, yeah, because throughout it has got that little boy kind of quality, and there's a lot of it's not fair and all this kind of stuff. And um, which yeah, they both have really. I mean, yeah, go, going brats. going back to that scene when they're really awful to the landlady, you just think, ah, oh, is this meant to be showing that they're the villains? Um, but it's not. It's like we're yeah. meant to care about them, especially when things take a bit of a turn later on. But yeah, go on. Yeah, I just wanted to say as well about. <laughs> Um, St. Michael Redgrave who appears to be acting in a 1940s film and seems oblivious to what's going on around him. Well it's especially great because he's against Freddie Jones at one point <laughs> yeah. I mean, Freddie Jones is fan- he's the best thing in he this is, by a long shot. Highlight. When he first turns up, there's uh, is it on a barge or something? I can't yeah it. it's like a boat party yeah. That they get dragged off to, the twins get dragged off to with Alexis Canner and his um, well his associate Denise isn't it? Um, but fantastic Freddie Jones turns up, is obviously middle aged at this point and he's just rolling around on a hammock in a very Oscar Wilde-ish kind of way um, a little later when Mike Pratt who will be familiar from Randall and Hopkirk deceased, although he does a good turn he's a very, you, you don't think of Randall and Hopkirk when you see him. No you think Jason King <laughs> no, he's a little bit more. I uh, did. I thought, whoa, really? Oh, <laughs> he looks a, a lot like him. I thought. Well, he didn't have the fainness of Jason King. He was, no, he's, but he's I mean, meant to be he had the, the mustache and you know yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the neckerchief and whatnot. But he's meant to be the sort of hard fist of the <laughs> under. That's an unfortunate phrase, given all. You know, he's meant to be the underworld in this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he turns up ready to cause a scene, and uh, Freddie Jones is offering him olives from a bottle. <laughs> I seem to recall. <laughs> But yeah, Redgrave is an MP uh, who seems quite enchanted by the uh, the twins, not just um, Judy Geeson, but both of them. And there's a specific scene when they're in a pub and he's staring off wistfully at them and he says to Freddie Jones, you know, they seem to carry their own universe. And you think, you know, what an ass And fun, fantastic. Freddie Jones just chips in with, doesn't everybody? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just deflating it. The but voice yeah, of reason. Coming from Freddie Jones in yeah. a hammock with his bottle of olives, yeah. Um, but yeah, I had no sympathy for the characters. I didn't understand why I was meant to care about them. And when things take a turn later, when yeah, it goes off into blackmail and murder, I don't care. I mean, no. there's a specific scene with. Um, I mean, like I say, Martin Potter's just on my hit list now. I, <laughs> um, but Judy Geeson's character, when she's talking to Denise, um, Canna's not probably not his girlfriend. This is probably in an age of free love and whatnot. But I think he, she just... Uh, Denise seems like one faintly sensible person. It is irritating now when you watch these kind of hippie movies and you're just looking at these people talking their crazy talk mm. and you feel that yeah, you're not really into any of this philosophy that's going on around you. You're just trying to sound like you're down with it. Um, and when Denise seems to be the one character saying, you know, what's going on here? Why are we doing this? I'm worried about so-and-so. Geeson just turns to her and says, I find you tedious and stupid and I think you should leave now. And it's out of nowhere. It's not like Denise has done anything to particularly wind her up or certainly not wind the audience up. No, because, they, well, they both have it in for because she's, she's trying to go off with Julian, isn't she? But mm. he's not really interested. He just wants to go off with 
um, Jackie. His sister, and he's just yeah. been horrible to to yeah. Denise from the outset. And yeah, and it's like Jackie picks up on it and then just decides to go to go with it. Well, have one of their quaint tea parties, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, because something else to mention, because um, I, I was borrowing your disc to review this. Um, I watched the trailers which were on it, and I think you said you were drawn to this by Amazon um, flagging it up after Mumsy Nanny and whatnot. Mm. There's a trailer for that on here. Oh, right. Also, something I've never heard of a kind of May to December f- um, romance called Say Hello to Yesterday with Gene Simmons in. Um, and it just struck me. These are, this is obviously, you know, all, all part of them. There's this little label probably reissuing these old films so they've got an audience. But it did make me think what was going on in British cinema in the early 70s? I mean, you, even there, you got the dog end. I've never, I've never been a fan of Carry On, but that was at its dog end there. And, Hammer, the, Hammer was a lot long past its prime. It was prime. the post-acid wave. Everyone was doing heroin. Um, <laughs> well, it's interesting to say that. What I've got written down is, I think we're, we're all used to this theory that after Easy Rider was a hit, Hollywood didn't really know what was going on and was just commissioning any kind of stuff because yeah. they acknowledged they didn't understand the taste of the youth. The youth. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if something similar happened in Britain, but it seemed like... Well, maybe. Uh, or maybe these are just... These are the kind of films which have always used to always be made, but... Yeah, that their stuff that's getting dredged up now. Um, yeah, because Lord knows I wasn't a fan of Mumsy Nanny. Uh, I don't think Say Hello to Yesterday's. I don't know. There's something about that. It, it had. <laughs> it's worth watching the trailer of that. Yeah, and see I'll, what you I'll, think ha- of it. I'll have a look because inside the DVD case there was actually a tra- uh, a picture of a film that I wanted to see called The Statue, with David Niven, whose wife makes a sculpture of a huge penis, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's all I know about it. But David just Niven's monocle David drops Niven. in his champagne <laughs> at this point, does it? So, anyway, goodbye, Gemini. Mm, they were savage, all gleaming buttons and short, sharp questions. A B C, easy as right. <laughs> I'm desperate to sing on this show. <laughs> You'll get your chance soon enough. <laughs> um, yeah, that fantastic time where we get to hear from you the listeners when we're not watching goodbye gemini <laughs> uh yeah a to z a film through midnight video um it's proving to be quite popular now it's we're getting lots of good feedback which means you get to read it out and you can hear what your fellow listeners are fans of or and win the shirts off their backs oh yeah quite although i haven't got mine on Oh, we made that clear before. No, I have got a shirt on, by the way. <laughs> yeah, we sit here naked recording just to keep things on edge, just to create a very uncomfortable charged atmosphere. Um, so I'll kick things off before we drivel on anymore. Um, so from Twitter, we got Rodoc, a.k.a. Andy McCartan, who has supplied us with two films in the past. Um, he put B is for Barva, I love Kill Baby Kill. Whoops. And of course, Black Swan, and then from Max Wren, uh, aka Stuart, who actually has done an A to Z on a boring train journey. But I'm just going to go up to F um, for this week. So A is for Argento, B is for Borovichik's The Beast, C is for Cannibals, D is for Decapitation from David Warner in uh, The Omen to Exorcist Three, E is for Eraserhead, and F is for Frankenhooker. Okay, um, I've got a. Lovely, generous uh, e- email here from Salty, Chris Salt, who's just won a t-shirt competition. See, The Cremator, a weird Czech film about a crematorium attendant's slow descent into murderous madness. More surreal than horrific, though. 
The director was a contemporary of Jan Svankmeyer and worked with him on some of his films. It has moments of black comedy and some brilliantly disorienting transitions that keep you off balance. Fantastic music too. David Cronenberg, so we're still in the seas. Yes, they're all seas. Um, David Cronenberg, a giant of horror cinema when I was growing up. Exploding heads, melty TVs, Jeff Goldblum turning to mush, and Jeremy Irons' special surgical instruments. More iconic moments than you can shake a stick at, or whatever it is Jeremy Irons um, (laughs) comes up with there. Alex Cox, not only the director of cult favourites like Repo Man and Walker, but as presenter of Movie Drome in the 80s and 90s, the man who introduced me to dozens of weird and wonderful films that I never would have heard of otherwise. I probably wouldn't be listening to Midnight Video now if it wasn't for Coxie. All hail Cox. I've just read um, his biography, um, The Confessions of a Radical Filmmaker, X Films it's called. It's Biography brilliant. or autobiography? Autobiography. Oh, right. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's I got it for like three quid hardback from FOP. Mm. And uh, yeah, I, I, I gorged on it recently. It's, it's fantastic. It's really insightful. He's a very witty writer as well. Yeah, yeah. It comes across in movie drum, obviously. Yeah. Well, you posted up the very first one, which again, showed my age. I remembered... I remembered so well that very first movie drum intro when he's stumbling into the, the set is kind of like a Americana motel, isn't it? Yes. With the neon flashing in the background. And watching it again, I mean, he looks like Mickey Rourke with AIDS. <laughs> um, but he looks he looks good. He looks like so, good Mickey Rourke though. Yeah. Good, <laughs> he looks so young. Um but also just the fact that as recently as eighty eight you'd have someone he's not reading an auto cue, I think, but he's probably got idiot boards with just broad things because it sounds like he's improvising what he's talking about because mm. uh, again only in 1988 people had to have cult movie explained to them as a term definitely um, now everyone kind of well they don't know what it means but it's a it's a term that people trot out it's in general usage isn't it back then people cult film what is that about the devil or something yeah. <laughs> but uh, no that was that was great yeah he describes cult films then specifically all the mythos around uh, the Wicker Man which again in 1988 wasn't that well known. To continue with uh, Chris Salt's email, Jackie Chan, he's not really playing to his strength since the move to Hollywood, but there's genuine moments of physical comedy genius in his Hong Kong work that rivals Buster Keaton. Yeah. You're a fan it, of the... Uh, Hong Kong stuff, definitely. I like some of the later... I mean, I thought Rush Hour, you mm. know, for Hollywood Fair, it was alright. Um, I went to see Jackie Chan's first strike packed out house I was sitting at the front row of uh, Peckham Premiere and there were this uh, a bunch of guys turned up late so they were sitting either side of me but at one point I remember watching uh, First Strike and Jackie Chan was in action and the guys were leaning across me shouting Jack is the G Jack is the G (laughs) Bruce Campbell do you need a reason Groove A and the Coens, they've been pushing their off-kilter misanthropic worldview on mainstream cinema and getting away with it for years now. And finally from Salty, Nick Cage, never not watchable. Boom, Cage is um, just creeping into the podcast. Yeah, he's, it's amazing, man. He's becoming like the unofficial mascot. He's <laughs> <laughs> sitting on the dashboard here. <laughs> what else you got? I got me some Facebook. Um, yeah, lots of... Uh, Facebook contributions here, so I mean, we're going to be eating into a lot of time doing this, but I think it's very worthwhile. So, from Mark Bloomfield, B is for Black Christmas. Not stunning, but I think it would stand as an important proto-slasher, possibly alongside Barber's, admittedly earlier, Bay of Blood, aka Twitch of the Death Nerve. 
Also, Blood Feast, okay, so it's terrible, but as it stands as probably the first gore film, I'd say it deserves a mention in Midnight Videos A to Z, as it must be directly or indirectly responsible for every splatter movie since. Amen, I say. Uh, also, we've got DVD extras, should this be an E, he asked. I don't care. <laughs> Includes commentaries, making ofs, etc. Some are ultimately pap, but there are some great ones. Sometimes more enjoyable than the film itself. For example, Toby Hooper's Toolbox Murders. Not in itself all that great, but the extra is the American Nightmare documentary, which is definitely worth a look. Richard Sampson, D is for dwarves. At six foot six, dwarves are my natural opposite, and therefore I'm terrified of them. <laughs> what kind of message are you pushing there, Rich? <laughs> From the Umpa Lumpers from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory to the fella in Twin Peaks, they freaked me out for years. Top of the short pile, though, is Don't Look Now. Seen it once, never gone back. Uh, we, we know how you feel about dwarves and the short A- acad- people. Academically, yeah. <laughs> also from Rich, E is for eye patch. Okay, this may just be a personal thing, but does anyone else find girls with eye patches extremely hot? The obvious one is they call her One-Eye, but even Nikolai Dante's mum in the 2000 AD comic strip rocks it. One-Eye with style. Anyway, wouldn't recommend raiding your kids' pirate outfits for a night in with the wife. It's a sure way to get yourself smacked. Bette Davis in, is it the anniversary? I think she's got an eye patch. Mm. And of course, Angelina Jolie and Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. Yeah, I haven't had the misfortune to see that yet. Uh... Don't get no. around to it. No, probably and, and I think a filthy punchline to a joke Jack Nicholson tells in um, what's the Shore Patrol thing? The Last Detail. Oh yes. I think he yeah. has a story about a one-eyed um, prostitute in that. And from Hans Olo Johansson or Johansson, B for band, pretty much akin to waving a red flag to a bull for me. Anyone telling me I can't see something, I'll do my utmost to find it. Also brings back the memories of tape trading and ninth generation VHS copies and I'm still trying to plug my last few holes on the video nasty list, despite all the crud I have to trawl through. (laughs) (laughs) It's a tough job, but someone's (laughs) got to do it. Phil McGee, D is for David Lynch, possibly the most dividing director, causing many booze-fueled arguments. Up there with Kubrick, K can't come soon enough with my friends. I like it when he kind of pins a movie to the narrative, and there are lots of wee detours that don't further the story but create the universe that this particular story exists in. But when it starts going batshit crazy and he just goes up to 11 from there, I find myself just appreciating the pretty pictures he's painting. E, also from Phil McGee, is for Evil Dead. When I managed to blag this from Helen's video shop using my dad's card, I thought I was in for a fun-filled thrill ride along the lines of other horror films I'd been watching. I remember thinking just before I got the living piss scared out of me, I don't recognise any of these actors. (laughs) If I had any concept of what a snuff movie was at ten years old, this was it. With zombies. <laughs> I remember having similar thoughts. I used to think certain the films that were banned must have been so awful that people actually got killed during yeah. the making of yeah. them. Yeah, I th- I, it was one of the dead movies, Romero ones that I saw when I was about four or five. My uncle was babysitting me, and there was all these like green people with like strawberry jam coming out of their mouths and. It really did disturb me for a while as a very young youngster. Uh, okay, I've got Marie Hepworth here with C for Cinemas. Slightly obvious, I know. When I was a kid, going to the cinema was so exciting. I remember watching most of the old Disney films when they were re-released or Saturday morning family showings of films, usually starring Ray Harryhausen monsters. Now I work for a multiplex and the excitement has worn off. 
every time I sell the a ticket the violin kicks in there <laughs> every time I sell a ticket for Transformers 3 a piece of my soul dies so it's still worth it for the very rare occasion we get something not entirely awful the look on people's faces coming out of Bronson for example was priceless I can imagine that I took my wife to see Bronson <laughs> this is you talking now right yeah sorry room. yeah that, that took Estelle to see Bronson and <laughs> she was a, a bit perplexed by it I, I was as well but in a good way because uh, I really like Nicholas Winding Refn but I can imagine people who uh, frequent the multiplex were a little bit perturbed uh, and also she's written DVD Delirium a four-volume set of books that list cult, weird, and classic films and tell you the best version to buy in terms of extras and sound picture quality. I've spent an awful lot of money due to these books and still have a massive, li massive list of titles to try and get hold of. A massive lift? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, if you like that, you should try DVD Beaver uh, online. <laughs> it's not Mel what Gibson you think. and Jodie Foster, that's it's what I'm thinking think. of. Um, she's also in I would have gone for Evil Dead for E but it seems to be covered so I'll pick a razor head instead I first saw it when I became obsessed with Twin Peaks as a teenager but I couldn't get through it just too weird for my younger self I can sit through it all now but it's still a difficult watch and the sound design really puts me on edge rounding things off Christopher Brown director's cuts with Laserdisc and then DVD it was great that directors finally got the chance to show their preferred versions of their films since it wasn't as expensive making film prints it seems studios were more willing to let directors show their original vision in the film's second run on video uh, agree with that it's, uh, yeah um, in fact it's amazing how many different you get some like Caligula or something in a four box uh, four disc edition which is every every conceivable cut of it but there's some I find uh, isn't Ridley Scott run into trouble with like Alien and Blade Runner because there's been so many cuts Are they of suing? it now <laughs> you, you, well you just don't know because even he has said that the director's cut of Alien isn't mm. his preferred version it's actually right. he it's prefers the original cut that's just a term now that gets slapped on the box to I think that is the mm. case now whereas it didn't used to be like that it was yeah. a genuine you know this yeah, is how this the director wanted it which is you know and you want that it? vision uh, there is that very long documentary on making of Blade Runner and they did that whatever it's called the final cut is it yeah when they really tweaked everything up in it apparently when they showed the, the final version to Ridley Scott he dozed off <laughs> and finally Christopher Brown again personally I got a second Evil Dead it was the film that got me interested in what happened behind the camera rather than just enjoying it as a movie which of course I did too and it scared the shit out of me. There's a lot of bad language going on in these emails. Come on, come on, let's, 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 let's get our act together there. I'm sure they're overrated. <laughs> the sequels kick much ass as well. That's, that's a more acceptable term. Also, I'll add editing, an important part of filmmaking that often gets overlooked and can easily make or break a film. Well, well, that's that how is films the job. Are made. Absolutely, that's what I wish I had done instead. Yeah, I don't whatever it is I do for a living now. Well, I mean, I edit these shows, and uh, <laughs> I feel that can be quite a task sometimes. So when I read like people, Walter Murch, who dealt with like a million f foot of film for Apocalypse Now, or uh, it's, these these guys are magicians. You know? mm. I mean, it's it's made a lot easier nowadays with uh, the digital process, but it's still it is literally how the film's made. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks ever so much, everybody. Uh, keep them coming in. Um, Woo! Yeah, thanks. This is all going well, really great. Coming, so uh, what, uh, what are you up to? Let's just go ahead. Um, just keep going. Keep going. Gee, I'll put stuff. I'll put some more discussions on uh, Facebook, and I'll keep people updated on Twitter. G H I, but G. 
prior to that as well, we're, we're happy to read out um, the previous letters of the alphabet. We, we love hearing from you guys. Of course. They became lazy. They even let apes fight their wars for them. In 1974, Saru no Gundan was six months' worth of Japanese telly with a premise which may be hauntingly familiar to anyone who ever witnessed Charlton Heston beating his fists into the sand while swearing at the Statue of Liberty. In 1987, US producer Sandy Frank gutted, redubbed and concertinaed the whole series into a puzzling feature-length film in which two children and a female technician hide within cryogenic freezers to avoid an earthquake only to wake up years later in a terrifying year of simian dominance. Or to put it another way, the time of the apes. So for no reason whatsoever, I'm just going to ask you, are you a fan of the Planet of the Apes films? Uh, yeah, uh, I like the second one best, Beneath. Is that the second? That's the one with the, uh, the creepy first... mutants. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Worshipping the doomsday device or whatever it is. The first one that I do like, because obviously it sets up the story, and yeah, I don't know, it's... I've not read the book, but it felt quite interesting you know concept wise and that but the later ones I watched when I was a lot younger and they've not really stayed in my memory but Beneath the Planet is the one I've seen the most yeah I seem to remember I quoted Ricardo Montalban from Escape from the Planet of the Apes at my friend's wedding when I was best <laughs> as man as you do yeah if it is truly mankind's destiny to be ruled by apes I can only pray they're all as beautiful as you are <laughs> no well if we've got our sums right this particular midnight video should be going out around the time that Rise of the Planet of the Apes is hitting cinemas and um, so we thought it'd be interesting to look at this well we thought it'd be interesting anyway goodness gracious what to say about this um, well, I think after two minutes of watching <laughs> it I sent you a text and I said wow <laughs> well you'd previously sent me a text saying I'm starting with Goodbye Gemini I'm glad I had implying that the evening was going to get better and better did you have some fun with this I did, yeah. To be honest, it was it was kind of fun. There is a point where it becomes so incoherent. Oh, there is not a point. There's lots of points where it's very incoherent that I found myself sort of a little bit bored by it, in a way. Yeah, you can break out the spell, because obviously there's a mm. lot of bizarre fun to be had just by the fact... As we, what I'll stress here is that it is six months of TV that got sort of cut down and redubbed so um, I'm not, I can't really blame, although I have a strong suspicion it was always going to be like this <laughs> but the fact they probably chopped things around, um, the, the dubbing possibly isn't literally what was um, it's not a literal translation of what the original uh, Yeah, I was going to ask if you thought that, because I I think they've probably re-scripted the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, they've taken liberties. I think yeah. I'd imagine, because yeah, it's just so fucking nonsense it's <laughs> well, yeah, you've got the the setup we've described. Um, two school kids going off for a day with Uncle Charlie at his um, scientific labs, and I think the big experiment they're doing is cryogenic freezing. Well, they um, called it cold, cold, cold sleep, something like that. Yeah, but there's a lovely bit very early on. Well, let's go right to the beginning. Sandy Frank. Sandy Frank turns up at the lead title. The titles of this are just shots of monkeys in zoos, and I don't think it's making any point. It really is just like, well, what can we come up with? And that really sets the tone for how cheap as a project the re-editing and mm. the dubbing is uh, we get straight into the plot then which are these two kids going off for a day at Uncle Charlie's um, science labs there's a lovely bit of dialogue when there's a tremor the parents rather than getting the kids inside so oh, don't go it's dangerous and the kids are no it's going to be fun <laughs> and goes off and then they're happily waving at them and you just think what am I letting myself in for here 
yes, they go off to the labs. They're shown how uh, suspended animation works with Deep Freeze. And Uncle Charlie's quite a bizarre character, isn't he? Yeah, he is. <laughs> it's unusually <laughs> jolly for a scientist <laughs> to just let kids go around. All this yeah, well, that's what I, 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 was, I thought. Is this normal that the kids can just walk around willy-nilly? Uh, it's <laughs> quite jolly, isn't it? Yeah. But then there is well, what we're, what's called an earthquake, but we see a volcano erupting. So it possibly shows us how much detail they put into scripting this. Yeah, but with some like really uh, uh, very lovely model work. Very subpar it. model. Well, um, oh, I, I loved it. I thought it, it was, was quite bad endearing. but entertaining. Yeah, um, it was so obvious that it was like tiny oh God, little yeah. models. And, you know, there wasn't even it didn't even come close to something like we were talking about um, last week for Derek Z- Meddings. Z- and, yeah, yeah, because yeah. uh, that, well, that's the thing. Uh, Derek Meddings did a lot of stuff for Jerry Anderson, but this was. Um, do you remember Starfleet, the old sort of? Oh God, with the robot that got built up. It was kind of a space opera, and it had this great theme tune, which Brian May covered. But yeah, the model work was more on a par with that. And rather confusingly, uh, there's the earthquake, eruption, natural disaster, whatever it is. Then, of all the stuff they could have kept, because this is a relative, like I say, trunc- truncated six months worth of TV, they keep in a shot of a very bad. Um, it's kind of a. Um, building site truck zipping along but it's so obviously a model oh that's incredible although it then has this weird shot from the truck's perspective which is so much like Danny's bike in The Shining (laughs) it's just zipping around roads yeah and it fills up a good 20-30 seconds yeah which excavates um, uh, what are the the kids are called Johnny and Caroline and Catherine aren't they we should say they're hidden in the uh, cryogenic chambers to to um, be safe from the earthquake, yes, haven't they? Yeah, but they're excavated and find themselves living in the time of the apes. Um, obvious question now: What did you think of the ape makeup? Oh, it's terrible. Oh, I didn't think it was that bad. Oh, I th- it was really poor. I thought it was going to start flaking off at some point. It looked like le- the it, leprosy or something. It was okay. The thing I will say about the ape makeup is they missed the very obvious thing to do, which is to black out the actor's eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, like the skin around their mm. faces, so when the mask is on, the whole thing sort of seem um, merges seamlessly. It's very obviously human eyes. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's like a balaclava, a monkey balaclava that they wear. Um, but also, what you've got there, because obviously this is a ripoff of Planet of the Apes, um, is their world is so mundane, isn't it? We've got an ape ticket inspector on a train yeah. at one point. Um, the guy who's presumably president of the apes. Um, who turns up and he's dressed very much like Colonel Sanders from KFC, isn't he? He's got this white cavalry coat and even uh, grey streaks in his... Yeah, he looks uh, like one of the Ewoks. But yeah, he turns up, but he's, he seems to be driven around from appointment to appointment in a very sort of comfortable family car of some sort, <laughs> doesn't he? <laughs> um, but yeah, this kind of reminded me of... I've read um, the original Planet of the Apes film, the Charlton Heston one. Uh, the original script was by Rod Serling, who did Twilight Zone, is very famous for that. And I think his original script was much more of a satire on contemporary America, and the apes there were going to be in tuxedos driving to casinos and things. <laughs> Uh, probably a budgetary reason they didn't do mm. that but this is kind of the other side of that it's just like <laughs> they're apes but there's nothing special about them other than no. that. they may as well just have turned up in Cuba or something yeah it's just matter of fact isn't it in fact yeah Cuba it, it only just occurred to me but because it, it's not like 
they're declaring all out war on the humans because uh, the military are after them but then the president intervenes and is like well things will be okay as long as you don't cause any trouble it's not like <laughs> Charlton Heston when he's getting lobotomized and stuff <laughs> as soon as he turns up and he, his presence could bring down society but um yeah, there are odd odd things happening in this. There's a UFO that flies around. It's a very traditional lampshade, silver lampshade kind of thing. But no one seems terribly bothered by it. No, um, it's used at one point. Well, it's used. There's a there's a scene where the the children are uh, being held captive, and the UFO flies over, and everyone's like, huh? And the 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 female technician, what's she called, Catherine? Catherine yeah, she she uses that as a a chance to run away but, but no no one sort of talks about it until a lot later in the show After much it's later on when the, the chief of police <laughs> it's time to talk about the chief of police <laughs> electric six. Oh god yeah do you want to do the joke well, he's called gay bar yeah which given Sandy Frank chopped this together in 1987 you thought he may have looked at that name and thought I don't know are people going to have trouble taking it seriously yeah. <laughs> he's like is it Uko or Uko in the original Planet of the Apes who's the kind of military leader who's going hell, hell bent on um, taking the humans out and here's called Gaybar and it, it does uh, if if it was hard taking this seriously anyway, then um, <laughs> the more he's shouting at, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he's usually getting um, slapped around by Colonel Saunders, yeah, <laughs> or the other guy. There's the other guy who dresses like John Pertwee as Doctor Who. He's got this opera red-lined opera cape and a cravat. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they thought all the apes are going to look the same. We need something to denote that his this guy's top banana. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of hijinks with the monkeys. Um, sorry, they're not monkeys, are they? They're apes. Um, but there's a lot of weird things with music cues as well. Whenever the president turns up, they have this mock um, fanfare, which sounds more like you'd have if some clowns were coming out at a circus <laughs> or something. And there's also there's a scene where the humans are making their escape, and uh, the alarm goes off, and it's the strangest alarm I've ever heard. It's it sounds like I don't know some kind of acid nightmare. Or something. <laughs> it's really weird. Maybe we go with the rest of the film. Yeah. Um, well, you say when they escape, that is pretty much the entire film is escape, capture, escape, capture, isn't it? Yeah, that's one of the things that I didn't really, you know, condensing six months worth of TV programs down into ninety-six minutes, all ninety-six minutes, including. <laughs> the last 20 minutes which are astonishing yeah we'll get on to those later, later. but yeah. It, yeah it, I just kept on wondering where are they running to um, it, it didn't really <laughs> it's useless to say it but it didn't make any sense to me at all and I found myself getting quite knocked with that I was a bit like, you were looking forward to Dick Tracy at this point yeah I, was, I really was after Goodbye Gemini <laughs> as well <laughs> <laughs> what a great Friday night you had <laughs> Yeah, it's it's escape capture and recapture and all of that kind of malarkey. Um, although it does build up to an astonishing crescendo when um, oh, we've not mentioned one of the major characters, Godo, who lives in the Green Mountain. Is it? He's a bit yeah. of a Che Guevara character living out there. The apes are terrified of going up because he's put man traps around. Um, <laughs> ape traps. Ape traps. Yeah, but Godo. I don't know if maybe. Samuel Beckett was still around at this point this, this may have been one of his last scripting jobs perhaps because <laughs> the ending is about as baffling as uh, well no, uh, Beckett's plays have a definite thing that they're saying This, the ending of this, which is 20 minutes of wind down 
which uh, usually we're a bit loath to spoil things, but um, Th there's nothing to be spoiled here. Really. There's not a lot to be spoiled. If you any enjoyment of this is merely watching the ape makeup and. <laughs> Like I say, it's kind of an opera cape and whatnot. Weird musical um, cues. Gaybar, the police chief, um, <laughs> is, is is after Godo. Gaybar is after Godo. He sure is. <laughs> um, because um, <laughs> Gaybar is waiting for Godo. Gaydar's got. <laughs> Gaydar. Yeah. <laughs> Gaybar's got his eye on Godo. Um, he's he's you know hungry for his blood. Um, because Gaybar believes that Godot was responsible for the death of his wife and child. The amazing climax of this, um, well, it's not the climax, again, it's like the last act, the mm. last half hour or so. A UFO just lands, shows Gaybar some snuff movies, and flies off again. <laughs> <laughs> While Gaybar's delivering amazing dialogue, like, please let me have revenge, it's only natural. <laughs> And you thought that would be the end of the film, but um, yeah, it, it goes on. Um, the humans go off and meet the snottiest computer I've ever seen. I think. Yeah. Um, poor old Godo, because he's not familiar with any of this stuff being local. But there's a point when he says, "What's a computer?" And the computer goes, "I'm not going to answer that. It's too primitive." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Jeremy um, Paxman. Yeah, I mean. Given the ending of the, the the actual Planet of the Apes is one of the most sort of celebrated endings, it's a big twist. Even if you know it before you've seen the film, you probably will. It's still a you know you can see what a great ending that is. This is possibly closer to the ending of the Tim Burton remake when it's just baffling. Mm. Although even the Burton one, the clues are there for what's happened in terms of time travel. This, ugh. It's just bollocks, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's absolute bollocks. Like, it just goes from one uh, clapped out bizarre theory to another sort of, as I say, special effects, but pff, they're not that special. <laughs> it's it, uh, all great dialogue, like Gaybar meeting Godo and about to kill him for about the third time in the film and coming up with the amazing dialogue at last. I have lived to see the day when I will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> or threatening his men who won't go into the Green Mountains with anyone who doesn't go will be will feel my laser whip. That's a quite good special effect, actually. Yeah, just, with uh, the uh, zapping zapping. around. So, has this made you uh, maybe curious to go and see Rise of the Time of the Apes? <laughs> no, but I'd like to see Beneath the Time of the Apes so it, so it can be destroyed <laughs> utterly and completely blown into oblivion. Oh, goodness gracious. Well, if you are curious about this, the whole thing is on YouTube as we speak. I don't know if someone's going to take it off very soon. Although th there I can are send you the VHS. Yeah, yes, we're not even going to ask a complicated question. Yeah. What's the away. name of the ape that makes us what's laugh? My what's your name? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the whole thing's on YouTube, although you can see it in the sort of Sandy Frank form, or there is the Mystery Science 3000, or whatever it's called, which probably have a couple of guys um, talking like we do all the way over it. So uh, oh, check it out if you uh, feel so inclined. I'll take care of Gaybar, Catherine. Before we go, we've got another T-shirt winner to, uh, to announce. We split these up so you weren't just going to be listening to uh, Rustling Paper for too long. But Phil, <laughs> would you like to uh, reach into the... The gay bar. And oh, my namesake, Phil McGee. Um, yeah, you're going to have a t shirt winging its way to you. Thanks for your contributions. To well the done, mate. A to Z. Um, yeah, and for everyone else, you know, 
keep writing in and keep them coming in through our usual channels. Um, opportunity you, may arise, like the planet of the end. <laughs> like the planet. Of the what end. are you? What are you going about? <laughs> I'm, you? I'm, I'm wittering. Yes, please keep in touch with us. Uh, Facebook is possibly the best one now, actually, although not a lot of people don't like it. But yeah, if you search for us. Midnight video on Facebook, and we have several discussion threads going. It's it's, it's kind of easy for the um, the A to Z thing, but also any any movies you want to suggest or anything you want to raise with us, we we try and get back to anyone who posts on our, our wall there. Yeah, we do, and also um, people have been emailing us at midnight video at hotmail.co.uk. So if you, if you want to have a, a bigger voice, yes, <laughs> that's the way to do it. Uh, also Twitter. If you want a little voice, go on Twitter <laughs> at Midnight Video, and I'm on there as well um, at The Furious. That's P H U R I O U S. If you're interested, uh, in what I've got a Twitter <laughs> on about. Oh, always no, uh, or your own blog, uh, which um, oh yeah, you had your stuff on your um, your 26 movies. Yeah, my is the Alphabet Challenge. I called it. So yeah, if you want to go there, it's ChristKidYouAreWeird.com. Uh, there's, I think there's a link actually from our. Yes. website which is midnight-video.com and that's everything yeah and subscribe at itunes leave little nice messages on there as well okay so that's it for show 17 we'll be back next time with show 18 which is something a little bit different yeah which everyone knows about already but let's just um for build those ourselves up. <laughs> yes we're going to be um looking at movie soundtracks yeah something different it's, it's going to be an audio audio experience as we say this the machinator from the toilets next in the office next door to this one are whirring away keeping but, it real we're in the yeah. shit shit of the apes we're doing the real shit here <laughs> okay thanks very much for listening see you next time bye bye sayonara Could have taken a little bit of the what we call the labial folds off. <laughs> <laughs>